0: The world is wrong. Hello Drgeheads and welcome back to the Drudge I hope you're having a fantastically autumnal time at the moment. In the UK it's been surprisingly good weather between very sunny and not very sunny, which is nice depending on what kind of thing you want to do with your day. If you want to have an inside autumnal kind of day, you can just sit in and stare at the rain. And if you want to go out for a nice walk, there's been quite a few good days where it's been really pleasantly sunny. Uh, wherever you find yourself, I hope you're having a good time with it. And before we get things started this week, I just want to do a little plug, if I may. And it's an appropriate plug, because this week is D, and the plug I want to do is for a show, which is called Drag, drag Bowie drag, bingo. 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 And it's a little show that me and my wonderful, very talented friend Josh Payne have cooked up. Josh is a musician, amongst other things. And we are putting on this show, which... It's pretty much exactly as it sounds, really. It's drag, which is wonderful. It's bingo, which, if you've never been to a drag bingo show, it's a real lot of fun and a collision of two worlds in a very mad, anarchic kind of way sometimes. And it's all seen through the lens of the life, work, and music of Mr. David Bowie. And I will be that titular Bowie figure, that Bowie drag persona to guide you through the world of music and bingo, and it's on Friday the 9th of December, Friday the 9th of December, and you can get your tickets on Eventbrite if you just pop in Drag, Bowie, Bingo, and it's going to be at the Art House in Southampton, which is a sort of spiritual hub for the queer community in that part of the world, and it's somewhere between a cafe and performance space, fringe, theatre space, and it's going to be a really wonderful time, so I hope you can make it along. Friday the 9th of December, Drag, Bowie, Bingo, Bingo, Bingo. 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 And so let's get on with the podcast, which this week is the letter D. And this week D is for doublespeak. So what we're going to be looking at is how words and terms are essentially like houses. And they can house many different meanings, many different suggestions, many different people even. And how at times these word houses can seem to want to try and house things that don't really seem like they should go together, that they're not going to coexist very comfortably. And so that's the doublespeak we're looking into. And we start this week on the little Greek island of Lesbos. It's the year 2008 and the island is very angry about lesbians. Linguistically speaking, the Greek island of Lesbos has a particular claim to the word lesbian it's what they used to refer to its people, the inhabitants of the island. And the islanders of Lesbos, the lesbians, were getting very irate that there were other people around the world, namely lesbians, women who like other women, who were using the word lesbian to refer to anything other than someone who comes from Lesbos. Demetrius Lambrou, one of the irritated lesbians and a magazine publisher, said we are very upset that women worldwide who like women have appropriated the name of our island until 1924 according to the oxford english dictionary a lesbian was a native of our isle now because of its new connotations our women folk are unable to call themselves such and that is wrong certain amongst the islanders of lesbos were so angry that they mounted a legal challenge taking to court the idea that lesbian could mean anything other than someone from lesbos Gay women have every right to define themselves as they wish, but they don't have the right to appropriate our national identity," said one Lesbos resident, Ioannis Acleoptas. At the trial, inside a rammed courthouse, one of the Lesbos islanders wore a badge that said, I am Paul and I am a lesbian. He also later produced a banner which read, If you are not from Lesbos, you are not a lesbian. Evangelia Vlami, representing the gay and lesbian community of Greece, said any fears of ridicule or negativity by association were unfounded. Let's stop playing around with words, she said. Protests like this are nothing but prejudiced. The term can be used by both sides without insulting anyone. The defence on the LGBTQI plus side argued that not all residents saw the association as negative, and that many saw it as wholly positive. The term has been used worldwide for centuries and has even helped the island boosting tourism, said defence witness Themistocles Kefalas. My daughter has no problem being called a lesbian, even though she's not a lesbian. Now, if I may for a second butt into these wholly bizarre proceedings, I myself have often felt like a lesbian. That's lesbian in the female sense, not the Greek island sense. I mean, I feel very feminine, very much like a woman in many ways that I if I can say so, love and act like a woman more often than not. Namely because I don't really know how to be a man very well a lot of the time and have often thought of myself as a lesbian with a penis. I suppose placing myself more in a female role because that's often felt more comfortable and then feeling that way, you know, socially, romantically. Does that mean I can be a lesbian too? Does the word stretch that far? But should I move to Lesbos? Then no one can tell me otherwise. Could all lesbians of all descriptions overrun the island of Lesbos to unburden the locals of any confusion about what the word lesbian means? Come on girls, I think we can do this. Maybe maybe now is not the time to have that conversation. Let's leave it to the lesbians, the islanders of Lesbos and women who love other women who may or may not be from the island of Lesbos. So this is a wonderfully ridiculous story. But the story does have a darker side of course because these islanders are not motivated by linguistic specificity but sexual specificity namely that it is only right to have heterosexual relationships only right to love people of the opposite sex despite Greeks ancient ancestors being famed for their homoeroticism. The court challenge came weeks after the first gay and lesbian couples were legally married in Greece and far-right group Golden Dawn had attacked gay and lesbian activists in the streets during Athens' biggest ever gay pride event. Grigoris Valiantanos, a long-time gay rights activist, said at the time, this trial is a reflection of the homophobia that prevails in Greece. So the etymology of the word lesbian whether you mean someone from the island of Lesbos or a woman who loves other women, it's all rooted in the same place. The island of Lesbos. This is where the Greek poet Sappho hailed from in the sixth century BC. Because of this historic connection, the island of Lesbos today is a popular destination for lesbian women. What's Where are my lesbians at? We're here in Lesbos. This is our spiritual home, but apparently that's not allowed. Sappho was a famed poet, described by Plato as the 10th Muse. At the time, women were regarded as intellectually inferior and entirely unsexual, so the concept of a woman loving another woman was completely incomprehensible. A, A joke, I suppose. But there in Sappho's poems were her expressions of her deep love, her erotic thoughts and feelings towards other women. Originally, women who love or are attracted to other women were known as sapphic, engaging in the act of sapphistry. The use of the word lesbian to mean the same thing is conjectured to have first occurred in the 1800s, but it wasn't until the 1960s and 1970s and the waves of successive feminist movements that it was used in the way it is today. Most of Sappho's work has sadly been destroyed or edited by moralists in an attempt to cover up her lesbianism and own her famed writing as an entirely heterosexual, traditional affair in the grand scheme of the story of ancient writers. But some of her poems in their original form have come to light over the years, and I'll read some to you now. This one's called One Girl. Like the sweet apple which reddens upon the topmost bough, a top on the topmost twig, which the pluckers forgot somehow. Forget it not, nay, but got it not, for none could get it till now. Like the wild hyacinth flower which on the hills is found, which the passing feet of the shepherds forever tear and wound, until the purple blossom is trodden in the ground. And another called, It's no use, mother dear. It's no use, mother dear, I can't finish my weaving. You may blame Aphrodite, soft as she is. She has almost killed me with love for that boy. So the difference between 6th century poetry and the kind of lesbian figures that you might be familiar with today, like stand-up comedian Hannah Gadsby, there's obviously a big difference, but, you know, reclaiming the true nature of Sappho in the true intent of her work serves very important artefacts in the story of lesbianism which is a story that has been over the years, of course, denigrated and put down and and misunderstood willfully. And another part of that, I feel, is the Dutch philosopher, theologian and scholar Erasmus wrote that apparently the word lesbiazen, which is spelled L-E-S-B-I-A-Z-E-I-N, was apparently an ancient term for to defile, referring specifically to the act of performing oral fellatio. Cunnilingus, which the islanders of Lesbos were accused of apparently unleashing upon the world. I guess a thank you is in order. Wherever Cunnilingus comes from, it's clear that the word lesbian in all its meanings is rooted very firmly in the island of Lesbos. To divorce the two in any way seems at this point entirely stupid. It would be like if we found that the word English had come to somehow mean or used to mean... Someone who likes having a finger stuck up their ass. Oh, you're English, are you? Would you change the word or even the name of the country? We're not English actually. We're Englanders. This isn't England, it's England. We're English. Oh, so you love squirrels, do you? You're a squirrel lover, is it? That's what the English do. Can two entirely opposed ideas exist within the same word? Can the word lesbian mean women who like women as well as meaning people from the island of Lesbos who actually don't like women who like women and want to have the word for women liking other women change to something entirely different, please? What word would that be? Sapphic again? Sapphic sounds, I don't know, quite aggressive, doesn't it? Like someone who's really into women. Oh, look at Iris. She's gone. all Sapphic. In terms of the story of Lesbos and the Lesbians, great band by the way, the court case was ultimately unsuccessful. I mean, I don't think you're really surprised to learn that, are you? I think the writing was on the wall when someone in Lesbos announced to their peers, that's it, we're taking on the lesbians. What do you mean, Yanis? We're we're going to attack ourselves? No, Dimitros, not the lesbians, the lesbians. What? I mean, the women who love other women, you know, the lesbians. I mean, not those lesbians, those not lesbians. We're taking them on. The island now seems to have embraced the etymological bond it has with the L in the LGBTQI community, with tourism up from 1,000 visitors per year to three to 4,000 who flock to Sappho's birth village of Erosos, which has 1,500 residents and is in a remote part of the island where there are three lesbian bars, apparently. The association seems, as the defence case argued, to be having a net benefit for the island and it seems to be working for all sides, lesbians and lesbians alike. When talking about queer issues, right, there was a lot of the kind of debate the court case brought up, this court case of the lesbians versus the lesbians, a lot of jostling over what words mean and signify. That could be trying to own certain words like the islanders of Lesbos, trying to own the word lesbian, or even reclaiming previously hurtful words like gay or queer as positive and empowering terms. This goes both ways, of course. An elderly neighbour was complaining to my stepdad not too long ago that he couldn't use the word gay anymore. What do you mean? asked my stepdad. I can't say I'm having such a gay time anymore, replied the neighbour, because people might get the wrong idea. The words we use, the way we interact with each other, The concepts and ideas that we hold are constantly changing, bashing into one another, becoming closer together and further apart. The other week, I careened headlong into a moment like this where I felt the laws of language as I understood them were disappearing beneath me and I was left floating in a bottomless universe of what the fuck are you on about? I'd answered a casting call for being an extra, being a supporting artist in a Netflix show, which is one of my favourite shows and... It's, um, it's a show set in some weird alternate reality, somewhere between an American high school and a remote British country school. You might be getting what it is, but it is very much grounded in the reality of being a young person in the 21st century. So I signed up online, been along to an in-person casting call, which turned out to be a complete waste of time. I could have done it all online. But anyway, I met some interesting people in the queue that snaked around the block of an entire building in Central Bristol and took me two hours to get inside. I then got offered work. Or at least, in theory, I did. I received this message. You have been heavy penciled for working Thursday, Friday, this week on Netflix show... Heavy pencil? I was at Camp Bestival Festival in Shropshire at the time when I received this message. And I went to one of the crew I was working with and asked, Would you reckon heavy pencil means? Heavy pencil? They replied. What the hell's that? Is that like a very firm pencil? But then they've also said... You are not confirmed to work for these dates, so please make other plans if you need to and don't book any travel just yet. That can't be a very firm pencil then, can it? It must be a moderately firm pencil. How is that different to a regular pencil? Maybe it's a special kind of pencil that's like a pen, you know, but one of those pens you can rub out with a rubber. Well, what's a pen then if it's not a pencil? A pen is what you use when you know you're writing something in a diary for definite. A pencil is what you use when you think you might have to change your mind, or out about what you've written. So how is a heavy pencil different from a regular pencil if it's not a pen? Maybe they didn't have a pen. Well why not just call it a pencil then? Maybe it's an engraving pencil, you know, for making a deep marking of what you're writing, like when you engrave something in stone, because it's a heavy pencil. Well that sounds even more extreme than a pen. That sounds like, till death do us part. Here lies Ree Baroche, who will be booked in on this Netflix show on Thursday and Friday this week. Hmm. So it's somewhere in between a pencil and a pen. Maybe it's a non-binary pencil. I mean, that's pretty appropriate for you, Ree, right? (laughs) I don't appreciate the irony. Maybe it's an iron pencil. You know, because it's heavy. So it's still a pencil then? Yeah, but you know, it's weighty. But what's actually being written? Your are heavy penciled in for Thursday, Friday. That's not so weighty, is it? No, I guess not. The heavy pencil. I've been into my local stationery shop to try and find one, and I couldn't find one anywhere. The guy at the counter thought I was mad when I asked him where I'd find the heavy pencils. Are you looking for a particularly big pencil? They generally just come in the one size. So what this casting agency did when they messaged me about potential work that that week was use a form of what is known as doublespeak. Doublespeak is defined as deliberately euphemistic, ambiguous or obscure language. So they were at one and the same time not offering me work, but presenting it as if they were. They were both offering the definite, the heaviness of the pencil, and the indefinite, the fact that it was just a pencil. So which bit am I to believe, the heaviness of the pencil, the sense of the definite, or the fact that it's just a pencil and could be rubbed out at a moment's notice? They want me to be available to work, but want my availability to work for them, in that I can be both available and unavailable so long as I'm available and they need me to be not unavailable. It's a sort of Schrodinger's pencil situation. The pencil they have sits inside a box and you won't know until you open that box whether it's a heavy pencil, a pencil, or perhaps even a pen. It is both a pencil and not a pencil, all at the same time. It's Magritte's painting of a pipe that shocks the art world in the 1920s, a painting that shows the diagram of a pipe, under which is written, Ceci n'est pas une pipe. This is not a pipe. Ceci n'est pas un pencil. Ceci est un... You been Was this a mischievous commentary on the nature of language, maybe? That words are fluid, flexible, changeable, unpredictable because the things that they represent are themselves fluid and unpredictable that a pencil can be used with the definitiveness of a pen even though it is forever at the mercy of the rubber of destiny what is anything that is written in pencil really worth if it can be obliterated from history with a swoosh of an eraser masterpiece written in pencil i don't believe you. i don't want to hear about it. it's trash it cannot hold the weight of its own meaning it's not strong enough to defend itself against the criticism of time Or is it the bravest and most meaningful of all written words? Those written in pencil, laughing at the passing of time, waving its lead-covered arse in the face of posterity. That's right. I'm written in pencil. Come and get me, why don't you? This graphic bitch can take you all on. Heavy pencil. I don't think I'll ever know what it really means. A pencil used to just be a pencil. Now it's something else. Gay used to mean happy, now it means booty shorts and dungarees. Words are fluid, a chameleonic blob that can be moulded, bent, contorted, squeezed into any shape that the user desires. But how far can you go? Let's go back to that definition of doublespeak. Deliberately euphemistic, ambiguous or obscure language. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. A rose by any other name would still be a 30 year old bank clerk in Dunstable. Does a word reflect the meaning or can it come to do that in time? By Shakespeare's example, if a rose flower was no longer called a rose, it was decided instead to call it um, a dungle boss. Would that flower smell less sweet, look less beautiful, have less enchanting connotations? No, I don't think so. It's still the same flower, isn't it? It's still the same thing. The word embodies the same essence. It represents the same thing. You can call it a dungle boss if you like. It's still a rose in terms of what a rose signified, meant, smelled like, looks like, whatever that is to you. Though you might not think of it in such sweet, idealised, romantic terms if it was called a... dungle boss. The word might actually come to change how you perceive the thing that it represents. Happy anniversary, honey! Oh, thank you. What, what's this? A box of chocolates and ooh, some dungle bosses. Yay! How did you know? Shakespeare is a perfect example of someone who stretched language, broadened its possibilities, literally helped to expand its size and uses. It's estimated that Shakespeare invented as many as 1,700 words during his career as a playwright and writer. Words like bump, critic, disheartened, laughable, pious, road, suspicious... The pious critic was disheartened by the suspicious bump in the laughable road. That sentence wouldn't be possible without Shakespeare. Thanks Shakespeare, but I, I think. He also invented words that never quite caught on, and that no one really knows the meaning of, though we can speculate. Words like "pajock," weaponed, arm gaunt. So I reckon "pajock" is someone who has tried to complete a feat of real physical exertion but hasn't quite made it. Like falling at a hurdle or not managing to lift a car that's crushing a small granny. Ah, you big pajok, better luck next time. Wappened is just an abbreviation of what happened. That's pretty simple, that one. And to be arm gaunt, I think that's what happens when you've masturbated for too much too long. What happened, you big pajock, You're looking really arm gaunt today. I'm particularly sad that a particular Victorian phrase fell out of fashion. And I really want to bring it back if you will please help me with this. Bitch the pot, bitch the pot. That's a wonderful, wonderful phrase, which means to make the tea. That's the problem, things don't always get better or move forward, you know? Let's make Britain bitch the pot again. (laughs) There are those in 2022, it seems, who believe that words are there to serve the user and those who believe, on the contrary, that the user is there to serve the words, that words are fluid or words are fixed. So I could start using the phrase bitch the pot every time I was going to make some tea and there'd be those who would understand eventually what I meant and there'd be those who'd wince every time I said bitch the pot because of the connotations the word bitch holds for them or complain every time someone looked at their passport yes I am a lesbian but that's not what you think it means the words woman and man are particularly bloody battlegrounds at the moment conservative politician and now prime minister Rishi Sunak was quoted during his Initial Tory party campaign I know it's hard to keep up But the one before this one The one before During his campaign for Tory party leadership He pledged to protect the words Man, woman and mother From the kind of woke nonsense That has sprung up in the wake of the 2010 Equality Act He came second to Liz Truss in the last one Who fortunately as a temporary leader Was so much better on LGBTQI rights She isn't wasn't but she was tough on cheese and sunak is so much better he isn't what is it that rishi sunak says these words need to be protected from do, do words need protecting do words need security f- f- sort of like fencing around them i mean i find it ironic that sunak is pledging to protect words like man woman and mother that are being proposed as having broader meanings than previously understood, whilst also railing against wokeness, a word that no one can actually really agree on what it means. From a speech he gave in West Sussex on the 30th of July this year, 2022, Sunak said, We are determined to end the brainwashing, the vandalism and the finger-pointing. Too often, existing legislation is used to engage in social engineering to which no one has given consent. The worst offender in this regard is the 2010 Equality Act, conceived in the dog days of the last Labour government. It has been a Trojan horse that has allowed every kind of woke nonsense to permeate public life. It must stop. My government will review the act to ensure we keep legitimate protections while stopping Mission Creep. Fortunately, Mission Creep was stopped. For a a few months, anyway. The Creep was not the leader of the UK, but shit. Okay, I'll stop twisting words, but The Creep is now the leader. So I, you know, he didn't, we didn't stop mission creep for that long. I look at the modern Tory party and it's key recent figures like Liz Truss for, a, well, she was a figure for a, a key figure for a minute anyway. Michael Gove, Rishi Sunak, Dominic Raab, Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, Priti Patel, Theresa Coffey. I mean, I know this is kind of a nightmare list of shag, marry, avoid. I can comfortably imagine them getting up at a late night Westminster karaoke bar and singing I'm a, creep, I'm a What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong in. It's hard to make jokes about UK politics at the moment because it keeps changing like every 5 minutes you know, and and doing a podcast where you're recording ahead of time. It's a bit of a waste of time, really. But I hope you enjoyed the attempt, right? (laughs) So, back to Sunak. The unsuccessful film franchise of a time-travelling UK politician. Listen to that speech he gave. You hear the kind of language he employed and what it implies through its use in the context of LGBTQI plus issues and people, right? No one has given consent this implies physical, sexual, verbal abuse, unwanted actions forced on victimized persons, and is used in reference to LGBTQI plus issues and people. Trojan Horse, referencing the story of the Greeks capturing the city of Troy via the elaborate ruse of gifting a giant wooden horse to the citizens of Troy, inside which the Greeks hid themselves, were carted inside the horse into the city of Troy, waited until darkness, and then sprung their attack. So. Why would you refer to something that appeared to be one thing on the outside, a lovely gift, but is actually full of attackers and knives and other things that might mean you harm, when talking about LGBTQI plus issues and people, specifically trans people? I'm sure it was just a colourful example that sprung to mind. You know, like there wasn't at all being used as some kind of covert attack against a whole entire people and meaning to demean their very existence and their ability to live peaceful lives and therefore having no representation for the people they're supposed to be represented by. I'm sure it was just a colorful use of language. Like, you know, like, eat out to help out. Just like a fun little phrase that, you know, wouldn't bring the country to its knees. But maybe it did actually have some good because I'm sure it encouraged a lot of people to engage in the act of cunnilingus. Which, as we know, comes from the island of Lesbos. Thanks, thanks again, lesbians. They're really helping out this episode. Of course... When he says protect the words, specifically man, woman, and mother, he means protect the people those words represent. Protect them from attempts from the woke brigade to distort the meaning of language and therefore the world in which we live. Like the way the casting agency I was trying to get work from distorted the meaning of the words heavy and pencil when offering slash not offering me work. That really put the moron in oxymoron. But am I the oxymoron for not seeing how their fluid use of language is perfectly fine. That they've simply found the perfect way to say, we want you to work, but we don't want you to work. And that's a very useful phrase in this zero hours gig economy life we live And Maybe they're doing a service to the greater gig economy. Is Sunak the oxymoron for not seeing that words represent people and things and people and things are changeable and flexible. Therefore, by definition, words have to be changeable and flexible too. I mean he is a conservative and that means in theory to conserve things keep them the same so he is at least sticking to the script of what his political allegiance is supposed to mean almost too much laughably so suspiciously so thanks shakespeare as with shakespeare this problem of protecting words might be solved by new words being invented or proposed such as pregnant people rather than mother. And while some people might regard this as being an effort to be more inclusive, others would actually argue and regard it as being exclusive. People like Rishi Sunak and all he claims to protect. Which essentially means their feelings around words like pregnant people are that they have the sense of excluding people who don't want to be included in inclusive language, basically. I'm not making a value judgment on that, by the way. I personally think using the word mother is absolutely fine, as it always has been for anyone that wants to use it. And anyone who doesn't want to use it, such as a trans man or non-binary parent, use whichever term you would prefer. And people who want to be referred to as mother or father and don't want terms like pregnant people to be used when referring to them, great, use, again, whichever term you prefer. It is you we are talking about. But when somebody else says pregnant person or pregnant people, that's clearly a reference to someone who wants to feel included, to cease being excluded, someone who is not you, and so as a person who is comfortable with mother or father, that is not you we're talking about, okay? That's what it seems to come down to, that some people do not like the fact that inclusive language, language that is intended to incorporate people who don't neatly fit into what is readily available, they don't like the fact that it exists, that some people are using it, that it might be used about them. In the efforts to include others, they feel excluded. There's the old saying that goes, one man's meat is another man's poison. I feel in 2022, talking about gender, it's more, one man's man is another woman's gender neutral person. It's important here, I feel, to highlight the origin of the phrase double speak. It's inventor. George Orwell came up with the phrase. It's often misquoted as coming from the book 1984, but its meaning certainly references the kind of world and logic that book exists within and demonstrates. On the side of the Ministry of Truth building in 1984, the following words are imprinted. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. To Orwell, doublespeak is the language of totalitarians. And this is certainly the language dictators use. Most recent and vivid in our minds to this end is Vladimir Putin, who has described his war on Ukraine as a peacekeeping mission and the denazification of a country run by a leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, who is part Jewish. These phrases do. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength highlight the balancing act of meanings that occur within human society, that sense that patterns can be found in any place. Humans seek meaning and patterns in everything. It has been and is evolutionarily essential for our survival. So war to some people can mean peace. If, for example, you cannot stand the idea of others you disagree with existing, then you must fight them. You must go to war to find peace. If you are afraid of having autonomy, of having to completely own the decisions of your life, of being ultimately responsible to do whatever you decide or feel, then freedom could be seen as a form of slavery. And in a world that seems so confusing that you are being asked to question everything and you feel you have no idea to what to do with all the things competing for your attention to be understood, then ignorance would appear to be the path of strength to forcibly block out the confusion of the world to achieve some kind of solid focus, some kind of grounding truth. These are all views on the world that totalitarian figures would be likely to have to explain their behavior to themselves and to others. That's how they would see the truth and justification in the view that war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. How Putin can attack a sovereign country and call it liberation. Humans and our understanding of the world is rife with hypocrisies, inconsistencies, dualities. One of the quotes that reflects this best that I've heard is Oscar Wilde's quote, Give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. To which you can ask, if he's wearing a mask, is it really telling the truth? If he has to pretend to be someone else, can he really be believed as being honest? What is the truth you have to lie to tell? that we all know exactly what Oscar Wilde is saying and we can see the truth in it. That is exactly what musicians, politicians, public performers of any kind do to get their message across. It's even what we do on social media, put up a carefully crafted representation of ourselves, a mask so that we may express what we really want to say. There's a line from a Tom Waits song whistling past the graveyard that I love. I never told the truth so I can never tell a lie. Is he telling the truth or is he lying? Is it both all at once? I never told the truth so I can never tell a lie. I might just talk this way for the rest of the podcast. I'll probably run out of voice eventually. Mm. Words are a battleground. Or at least they can be. And in the UK at the moment, and going forward under a government whose leading figures have recently been very anti-anything LGBTQI+, I feel it's a battleground that's only going to intensify. The likes of Rishi Sunak, now Prime Minister, might argue that trying to make the words man, woman or mother more inclusive, or suggesting alternatives for those who don't feel represented by or comfortable with those words, such as non-binary or person or pregnant person or parent, he might argue that those are a form of doublespeak, deliberately euphemistic, obscure, ambiguous. And I suppose if you're talking about single-sex spaces, safe spaces, I can see where he might be positioning himself from on this point. I don't agree with this viewpoint, which essentially seems to be this word has only ever meant this and can only ever refer to these particular people, so let's stop this now. It is a tricky problem to figure out. How do you respond to a situation where a women's only space has women in all meanings of the word within it. And one of the women says, I don't want trans women in my space. This is only for women who were born women. So in response, do you make that space a space that is for women and trans women? Because that feels on the one hand, inclusive on the on the other hand, exclusive, right? Saying that trans women basically can only be women with a little asterisk next to it. It's insisting on being incredibly specific wherever you go, which does undoubtedly make people feel more exposed and vulnerable, which they don't always want to have to be, understandably. And understandably, I can see how a woman might feel threatened by a space that they have felt safe in, being broadened to include other people they feel are potentially not safe. That's not the responsibility of the other women to justify their right to be there, that they are safe. It's one of the remnants we are left with of a system where we have been divided by sex, by gender for so long, And for many people the only places they have felt are safe for them are with those they perceive as their own kind which we are now realizing seems to have correlated incredibly closely with the genitalia you have or the genitalia you are perceived to have and as frustrating and crazy as that is you have to acknowledge that everyone comes to this with different baggage different experience different attitudes towards gender and ultimately everyone wants to just be heard and valued. This makes me think of the story of MitchFest, which was covered on John Ronson's podcast series, Things Fell Apart. MitchFest was a festival set up in the 1990s for women to come together in solidarity, listen to music, dance, and seek to tackle issues they were struggling with, whether violence against women or the system of the patriarchy and how to dismantle it. Nancy Barkholder, a trans woman, started attending this festival, and at first... She felt very welcomed, whether enjoying the festival, being in conversation with women, at times topless or naked, just feeling good basking in the female energy of the place. But in 1991, when accompanying her friend Laura to meet a friend of Laura's in the car park, Nancy was accosted by a couple of other women who said that they needed to talk. They go to one side and Nancy is told, "'You know MitchFest is for women only?' "'Yes,' says Nancy. "'Are you transsexual?' the woman persists. My medical history is none of your business, says Nancy. I have a driver's license, a birth certificate. I'm as legally female as any other woman. Well, replies the woman, Mitchfest is for women born women only. You have to leave. You have to leave now. At this point it's one in the morning. Nancy says she felt no sense of shame or embarrassment at this meeting. She remained proud of who she was in that moment, but that it was a moment of supreme rejection she'd never experienced before after she arrived home to New Hampshire, she wrote an op-ed, short for Open Editorial, which was published in Bay Windows, a Boston LGBTQI publication. She described how there was no mention in the Mitchfest literature of trans women not being welcome, and that she'd said to the woman ejecting her that there were other trans women at the festival too. Yes, the woman replied, we know about them, but haven't caught them yet. But we've caught you. I mean, I'm totally on Nancy's side in the story, but I do find it a little troubling why she felt the need to tell... Uh, this woman accosting her for being trans that there were other trans people out there that she could then potentially go and bother not comfortable about that but carrying on the following year the festival literature did include disclaimers saying that the festival was for women born women only read trans women are not welcome the festival organizers didn't deny this fact but said they didn't go around confronting women on their gender identity and that Nancy was the only woman to be ejected in the festival's history. The year after that, Nancy returned to the site and with female friends, cis and trans alike, went into the opposite field and set up camp. There were about 10 or 15 of them with a table and some literature, and women from MitchFest were invited to come over and hang out. The next year, they did the same thing. They called it Camp Trans, and hundreds of women from the neighbouring Mitchfest would come over to offer food, water, and flowers. In 1995, attendees to Camp Trans were escorted by some lesbian friends. That's women who love other women, by the way, though I guess they could have been from the island of Lesbos. They escorted them onto the Mitchfest land, where hundreds of women gathered around to hear what they had to say. A woman called Leslie spoke, saying, There have always been transsexual women helping the women's movement. Transsexual women want to be welcomed into a woman's space for the same reason that every woman does. To feel safe. I think we can all agree that's what we all want, right? Whatever our space is. To feel safe. And in the context of women's only spaces in particular, the definition of that word safe is not mutually agreed upon, is it? Because some regard safe as contingent upon trans women not being there. This story illustrates also, as I've said before, how the LGBTQI movement is not one singular voice. That there is much agreement and disagreement within it. Whether lesbians siding with trans people, lesbians siding against trans people, or trans people siding against other trans people. Nancy was not at Camp Trans and Mitchfest in 1995 to see that march of solidarity because she'd left over disagreements about what type of trans person should be allowed into Camp Trans, whether it should be only pre-op trans women who perhaps couldn't afford or didn't want the surgery or post-op trans women like Nancy. Nancy says that she was not comfortable for pre-op trans women to show up in a sensitive women's space and that for her, that signaled her last involvement with Camp Trans. This story is also where the term turf comes from actually, which is an acronym for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Feminist writer Vic Smith was invited to talk at Mitch Fest, after which point she was challenged about whether she should go or not because of the festival's history of excluding trans women. Consulting with a private online forum of intersectional feminists, radical feminists and trans women, they and Smith arrived upon the term "turf." In that moment of invention, it wasn't intended by any of them to be an insult. It was simply meant to be descriptive of the fact of that matter that certain women don't want trans women in women's spaces. It's since been used in a pejorative way, and I think that's most—that's the meaning that most people at this point would associate with turf in 2022. That it's not something you're going to be particularly happy about being called. So that is another term or word that has changed over time from what it was originally intended to mean. Though, when you think about it, it's not really surprising, really, is it? When the TE stands for Trans Exclusionary. Which I suppose could, in the case of Nancy ceasing to go to camp trans because of disagreements about what type of trans person should be allowed, could also include trans people like her, seemingly paradoxically. Being trans and also being trans exclusionary. Words are a paradox. It's with cases like this where the word, the theoretical meaning, collides with the reality the people and places that the word is supposed to represent. And that is the battle that is being fought on this battleground around the word woman in particular, because some believe that someone who is a trans woman can never be completely a woman, if a woman at all, that they will be a woman with an asterisk. And because women historically haven't felt safe around men or those they see representing the word man, this is why it is such a vicious battleground for all concerned. The battleground over the term man you will find, is less well publicised, perhaps because of that simple matter that men do not generally seem to feel threatened by trans men coming into male spaces. It certainly doesn't get the kind of media attention or public furore that trans women's issues do, whereas some women most certainly are expressing those feelings of feeling threatened by trans women in women's spaces. And that is the sticking point of the issue at the moment, I feel, to which the solution is not that clear. Maybe it will be, have to be a continuation of the kind of separation at Mitchfest with women who feel comfortable with women of all varieties opting for those spaces and women who don't not opting for those spaces. It's a sort of solution. But then the lesbians of all varieties seem to have sorted out the lesbos issue. So optimistically perhaps, we'll see. Now it's time for the gender lewd. The pause in the show where you may hear some people trying to sell you some stuff. A reminder that you are a product and that you must also buy products. So we're going to have a little bit of a pause, a little bit of a mood-oriented ease into that reminder that you are a product and you must also buy products. So enjoy, take a bathroom break, but if you're on the island of lesbos, remember a toilet for lesbians is the toilet for lesbians only. And see you in a few. back and after all that noise washing through your ears i just want to have a quick reminder this podcast is supported via patreon if you go to patreon.com slash droge that's d-r-o-d-g-e you can see how you can get involved how you can support the podcast with your donations and how you can get involved in the evolving community that is droge the droge cast around all that is was and maybe gender of which you very much can be a part and after all that I want to talk about nudging, nudging, and nudging, when we're talking about human society, is a recent concept in behavioural science, the concept of pushing us ever so slightly to influence our decisions and behaviour. This concept would be familiar to, say, a modern day behavioural scientist, the designer of a social media app, perhaps even an economist, certainly a politician. The Department of Finance in the UK Treasury, under David Cameron, actually set up an institute of nudging to try and change British public behaviour. Which, I know based on what I've just defined as nudging, what that institute would actually be like inside would be a lot of people trying to work out how to slightly influence the decisions of ordinary people. But I can't help but see it like the Ministry of Silly Walks sketch from Monty Python. Except with nudging. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, know what I mean? According to the publication Behavioural Scientist, there is nudging, and by contrast, there is boosting, two methods that can be used to influence people's behaviour. So we have nudges, which aim to change behaviour through changing the environment, and boosts, which aim to empower individuals to better exert their own agency. The behavioural scientist says underpinning each approach are different perspectives on how humans deal with bounded rationality. The idea that we don't always behave in a way that aligns with our intentions because our decision making is subject to biases and flaws. A nudge approach generally assumes that bounded rationality is a constant, a fact of life. Therefore, to change behaviour we best change the decision environment, the so-called choice architecture, to gently guide people into the desired direction. Boosting holds that bounded rationality is malleable and people can learn how to overcome their cognitive pitfalls. Therefore, to change behaviour, we must focus on the decision maker and increasing their agency. On the David McWilliams podcast, which is a really fantastic podcast hosted by, unsurprisingly, the Irish economist David McWilliams, very entertaining, cultured, well-travelled and down-to-earth economist who just chats on each episode with his producer and friend John, about whatever's whatever's on their mind for that week, whichever guests they're talking to, what's going on in the world, all about economics. Which, as David Williams says at the intro to each podcast, to understand the economy, you have to first understand human nature. So it's a podcast that is just as much about people as it is about the economy, because what is the economy but a bunch of people bashing together and throwing money around? Or not throwing it around? So on his podcast, on an episode about behavioral economics. He gives an example about how our lives are now constantly, since the invention of smartphones and the pervasiveness of modern advertising, our relationship with the corporate world is constantly being affected by the concept of nudging. He speaks about how he was going to renew his subscription to the American publication, The Atlantic, and was presented with three options. Subscribe to the online version only, subscribe to the paper version only, or subscribe to the paper and online versions. Now, as David McWilliams points out, what The Atlantic really wants you to do is to subscribe to the paper and online versions because this is gonna cost you more money. And the sense of choice they've presented you with is essentially false. Yes, you can choose to only have The Atlantic online or you can choose to only have it in a physical copy delivered to your door. But with both choices, there is a sense that you're missing out, that you're being denied part of the service. This is called the decoy effect, nudging us to make slightly different decisions that allow the retailer or service provider to extract more money from us. This is a less extreme version of what some companies do that I've heard about, like Ryanair, as my brother-in-law told me recently about when he was booking a ticket for one of their flights, and he was asked, Do you want to book extra baggage? The yes sign was coloured green. The no sign was coloured red. And as we humans have come to typically associate green with go as... A positive or active choice, Ryanair are clearly trying to psychologically aggressively nudge you in the direction of paying more money for something you might not actually need, and trying to bend your will against not spending more money by colouring the no option with a colour that we associate with stopping, with negativity even. Eddie Izzard has a great take on this from one of her stand-up specials in the 90s. She observes that supermarkets, maybe you've noticed yourself, always have the fresh produce at the entrance to the store. Your onions, your tomatoes, your vegetables, your fruit. So that you think to yourself, Ah, this is a fresh shop. I will do well here. They don't put the toilet roll, say, at the entrance to the store. Otherwise you might think, This is a poo shop. Everything here is made of poo. Now, Eddie... Eddie Izzard is a perfect example of how language is flexible and changeable, how it can change over time, or even sometimes exist on all planes of meanings, all at once. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Eddie came out in 2021 as using she, her pronouns. And when I myself talk about Eddie Izzard, if she comes up in conversation, I'm a really big fan of hers, have been for a long time. I will use she her pronouns to refer to her, because that's what she's indicated she would prefer. Where it gets confusing, perhaps, is where my brain programming gets confused, is if I refer back to something she has done in the past, when she was known as he him, to a memory or time that my brain has associated with those pronouns, so I might accidentally misgender her, which I've seen other people do as well. And sometimes To overcompensate for this, I find myself, and I've seen again other people do this too, I might use they them pronouns so that I essentially can't use the wrong pronoun, whether I'm referring to past he him Eddie or present she her Eddie. So by nature of the fact that Eddie has been active in the public eye since the early 90s, when she was out as being transvestite but not out as using she her pronouns, she occupies all different sides of the pronoun spectrum all at once. Because she was he, and the he Eddie has now become she. Eddie is everything, everywhere, all at once. And my point in raising this is to look at what non-binary or genderqueer really means, and how in a way it it could be seen, arguably as a form of doublespeak. It is saying more than one thing at any one time. They, them, or ze, zer, xie, or using multiple interchangeable pronouns, is challenging our accepted understanding of what language can contain and refer to. So it it, it is arguably a form of doublespeak. But I would take out the pejorative meaning that we've come across in this episode around the phrase doublespeak. Because, you know, it's not some Orwellian lie to try and con or trick you to try and convince you that war is peace and ignorance is freedom. Ignorance is strength, sorry. Or some believe that it You know, some people seem to be arguing that it is that same equivalent, same type of doublespeak. It's not, I would argue, a limbo state of language. For to be in limbo is to be suspended between two worlds. Classically, to be between heaven and hell. This gives the sense of potentially having the worst of both worlds. As a part to the story in the Netflix sitcom The Good Place, where they arrive in the medium place otherwise known as limbo. This is populated by just one solitary person, Mindy St. Clair, one moral anomaly who was neither good enough to get into the good place nor bad enough to be sent to the bad place. So she lives in this fine, mediocre place where she watches okay daytime soaps and masturbates a lot. I mean, I love me some solo fun time, but that is not what being non-binary genderqueer means to me. Not entirely, anyway. It doesn't feel, at least to me, being directly in the middle of something, being non-binary, being genderqueer. It feels like being, not all the time, but some of the time, like being everything, everywhere, all at once. And this is the thing, right? Words are not supposed to allow you to do that. Words are meant to be fixed, definable, definite. They go in a dictionary. What else would we have a dictionary? But then we also have, thanks to the internet, the Urban Dictionary, or things like it. Meanings behind meanings, and that's been there since before the internet. For words themselves, in the words of Walt Whitman and Bob Dylan together, contain multitudes. Words contain multitudes. You and I contain multitudes. What's this? It's a spanner. Well, what's this in? It's a Kiwi. Do you mean the nationality or the fruit? The fruit? How do you know it's the fruit? Because it's furry and green inside. How do you know it's green inside? Have you looked? It could just be a small, furry, round New Zealander. Oh my God, you're right. Let me get my knife. Help, don't do that. I'm not a Kiwi fruit. I'm a Kiwi man. (laughs) What would being non-binary look like if you got your language knife out and opened it up? like a stick of rock that showed the same colours as the non-binary flag, yellow, purple, black and white? Or a kind of Pandora's box of gender, all the possibilities all at once, everything from Janelle Monet to Sam Smith to Bimini Bomb Boulash? Is the non-binary gender-fluid expression some form of doublespeak after all, or something much more specific than that? There's a quote I pondered a lot over the course of the past decade or so, i've been a fan of f scott fitzgerald the brilliant tragic american writer since i was a teenager and i ended up in my final year as an english and french student doing a dissertation on his works looking specifically at and i don't think you'll be surprised about this whether his novels and short stories displayed a sort of proto-feminism whether he could be seen argued to be a sort of feminist writer before that was kind of in the the common parlance kind of much more in the water though of course the suffragette movements happened alongside his writing in the 1910s and 1920s, with the suffragette movement being formed in 1903. So even then, as a student in my late teens and early 20s, I was sort of doing what I'm doing now, looking at gender. And in my research for that dissertation, I read everything Fitzgerald had ever written, and found this extract here from The Crack Up, which was a short piece that he published in Esquire magazine in 1936, basically saying, I'm a washed up mess, help me, but I need to earn money, so here's an article. Pay me, please. He wrote, Before I go on with this short history, let me make a general observation. The test of a first grade intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. One should, for example, be able to see that things are hopeless, and yet be determined to make them otherwise this philosophy fitted onto to my early adult life when i saw the improbable the implausible often the impossible come true and i feel this is what it means to be non-binary in a in a gender nutshell if i can put it in there i am a man i am a woman all at once i am neither man nor woman all at once i'm a little bit this and a little bit supposedly the opposite of this all at once and I suppose you could argue that's either incredibly specific or incredibly ambiguous. Which in itself is a, form of, it's a sort of a form of doublespeak, isn't it? It either means everything specifically or everything generally. But re, you might ask, how can both things be true at once? Surely one down the line will become false, therefore was always false. Possible. But wouldn't that make it true in the moment? And I turn unexpectedly again as i'm as, as kind of becoming more expected now that i'm turning to science as a l- long lifelong science phobe turning to science writers for inspiration for for guidance through these episodes the writer carlo revelli gives a beautiful example of this in his book seven brief lessons on physics when talking about the advances in understanding around quantum mechanics and how two opposing theories that contradict each other Can both be correct. Nature is behaving with us like that elderly rabbi to whom two men went in order to settle a dispute. Having listened to the first, the rabbi says, You are in the right. The second insists on being heard. The rabbi listens to him and says, You're also right. Having overheard them from the next room, the rabbi's wife then calls out, But they can't both be in the right. The rabbi reflects and nods before concluding. And you're right, too. Looking at it from a behavioural economics perspective, what I was listening to David McWilliams talking about on one of his recent podcasts, or behavioural gendernomics in this case, he argues that when interpreting the meaning of a situation, we tend to default back to the perception where we feel most in control of our environment. So he uses the example of his mother losing her car keys, which normally sit on the top of the TV in her living room. Believing they've gone missing, she prays to Saint Anthony, the patron saint of lost causes, and lo and behold, she finds the car keys on top of the telly. This makes the world make sense to her, in the sense that she lost something, she prayed to the man who was responsible for lost things, and the lost thing came back. To an outside observer, outside of her worldview, like her son, David McWilliams, the keys were never lost they were always on the top of the TV, where they always are, his mother just forgot or wasn't thinking clearly. So in this example, it sheds light on the control that we all seek to exert over our own environment by how we interpret it. For David McWilliams' mother, it's that there is a God and all of God's saints are looking out for her. And for David McWilliams, there's no God, you're just a forgetful agent. So applying this to the concept of doublespeak, I would argue that we do have control over the words we use, the words that we all use, but not as much as we think we do, because we all use them. What one word means to one person can mean something entirely different to someone else, as the islanders of Lesbos know only too well. Look at the cases of mistaken identity that have been made possible by the invention of Twitter. The user at John Lewis is repeatedly mistaken for the British homeware retailer John Lewis At John Lewis Retail. He seems to be pretty good humoured about it, and at a recent Christmas, John Lewis the Shop sent John Lewis the Person a Christmas hamper for being so good natured about the strange state of mistaken identity a sort of sorry and thanks for seeing the funny side of people complaining to you about their faulty blender. Less good natured fun for Twitter user at Steve Bannon, who, after Donald Trump appointed Breitbart founder Steve Bannon as his chief strategist, found himself receiving large amounts of ats abusing him for his policies and opinions. Steve Bannon is a 45 year old HGV driver from Swindon in Wiltshire in the UK. This is what I think of when I see people misgendering other people or refusing to accept that some people want to use gender neutral terminology, like myself. It's a case of mistaken identity, but with words. It's like you've got a problem with your neighbor, Diane. Diane keeps throwing empty bottles into your garden after she's been up drinking late into the evening, and you're just not happy with it. You see Diane in the street one day, and you decide to finally accost her. Diane, we have to talk about this bottle situation. My garden is overflowing. My lawn is covered in glass bottles. I'm sorry, but I'm not Diane. Exactly what Diane would say, you think, the alky glass littering charlatan. Now listen here, Diane, that's not going to fly with me. I know what you're doing. I see the glass bottles piling higher and higher every morning. But I'm really not Diane. I don't know what you're talking about. Diane, I've told you I'm not taking your nonsense anymore. The bottles have to stop. My name's David. I don't care, Diane. This is coming to an end. Mark my words. It's David, not Mark or Diane. No more bottles, Diane. You've decided that David is Diane and you have none of it. They look so alike. How can it be anyone else? But Diane is David and... David knows nothing about the glass bottles piling up in your garden. Resistance to calling people by their preferred pronouns, the use of gender-neutral terminology. It's like the mistaken identity of David and Diane and the garden full of glass bottles. You are taking your emotional baggage and feelings around gender, the unasked-for glass bottles in your garden, totally legitimate in their own right, and you're taking them to someone you are unable to recognize for who they say they are. David. Or is it Diane? but seemingly not the person you wanted to direct your frustration at. What is this doublespeak? How can you be David and Diane? What about my glass bottles? I'm just David. Have you thought of throwing the glass bottles back into Diane's garden? Or going and having a word with her? Recommending she go to an AA meeting? Rather than accosting strangers and insisting that they're the glass bottle bandit ruining your garden? It is a worrying time in many ways to be an LGBTQI plus person in all corners of the globe. I mean, we're sort of going to see next month in November with the World Cup in Qatar, a sort of collision that doesn't normally happen between those two worlds. And, you know, uh, in in the UK, we're obviously much safer than many parts of the world. But we're all on the edge of our seat, I feel, from an LGBTQI plus perspective, waiting to see what the new PM Liz Trust, sorry, new PM rishi sunak is gonna do whether she sorry he will be a more enlightened politician as leader of the country than uh, whoever else was in charge before uh, you know when who was in charge before like five minutes ago was quite from my understanding a thoroughly exclusionary divisive minister for equalities that's liz Truss, the, the the former one but the one before the the, the, the the not the not one now the not one now Maybe maybe Liz Truss, former, uh, former Prime Minister and former Minister of Equalities, I'm sure former many things, I don't know what she's doing now, maybe she'd do well to take a trip to the island of Lesbos and indeed that can extend that trip to the Department for Equalities, the All Minister for Equalities going forward. Maybe they'd do well to take a trip to the island of Lesbos and see how two seemingly opposed worlds can coexist on one island, inside one word, and that we can all get along, lesbians and lesbians alike. Maybe that's the best way to look at words. That they are like islands, islands of meaning and significance. And that one island can contain two meanings, two concepts, two sets of people that it can be argued are diametrically opposed. There is a word for such words, in fact. Contronyms. A word that means one thing but also means the direct opposite depending on the context. For example, the word left means something that is remaining. There's one lesbian left on the island of Lesbos. And it also means something that is missing. The lesbian left the island of Lesbos. Another example, the word cleave, which means to split, to cleave a piece of meat, or to hold close to, as in the young cubs cleave close to their mother. The word dust is a great one. Dust. It means both to remove dust, to dust a room, and to add dust, to dust a piece of cake or to dust a painting. Some words even mean the opposite of what they're used to, The word awful used to mean awe-inspiring. My, what an awful speech. And now it means terrible. My, what an awful speech. The word egregious used to mean exceptional, to rise above the flock, to stand out amongst the pack. Now it means, after much ironic usage over time, the exact opposite, to make an egregious error. But I suppose, you know, that could still mean an exceptional error, an error that stood out amongst the pack, but the implied sense is very negative, switched from what it used to be. Words are, have always been fluid, because they represent things that are at one and the same time, both fixed and fluid, whether people, places, or things. I guess all of us are guilty of doublespeak, like kids fighting over a rock they found in the garden. Finders keepers! Or two old men with metal detectors squaring up over whose bleat went off first. Words are, I would argue, forever changing because Everything is forever changing. So what to do with the dictionary then? Okay, yeah, I think I've got it. Maybe we need to write the dictionary from now on in a way that means the words and meanings written inside have a sense of being definite and fixed. You know, you can put them in there, write them down and rely on the meaning in the moment, but there would be something we could change at a moment's notice if we need to. Now, where would you find a writing implement that would allow you to do that? A heavy pencil! A heavy pencil? Did someone call for a heavy pencil? Did someone call for a heavy pencil? Can we get a heavy pencil over here? A heavy pencil. (laughs) See you next week, Drodge Heads. Drodgecast is a production by Barosh Voices for Drodge. A label without labels.